0: Genesis chapter 14, we started uh, last week, we uh, started in verse 17, and uh, we didn't get everything done last week, so I told you that we would try to finish uh, last week's lesson and move on into chapter 15 today, and that's my plan, we'll see how far we get. So, last week we were, uh, we were covering the, the story about Abram's return from his defeat, of the four Mesopotamian kings. Uh, Remember, he had pursued them in order to deliver his nephew Lot. And uh, he succeeded at that. He defeated the kings. He recovered all the plunder that the kings had taken, not only of Sodom, but presumably of the entire Transjordan. And and then returned uh, southward. And when he got to the King's Valley, he was met by uh, by these two kings, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and the king of Sodom. And that's the story that we were looking at last week. So, let's read. Uh, let's begin reading in verse 17 of chapter 14, and we'll read on down because we do want to get into chapter 15 today, as the Lord allows. So, let's read on down through verse 6 of chapter 15. So, pick it up in 14.17. Then, after his return from the defeat of Ketelamar... And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal or, or sandal thong or anything that is yours, for fear that you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Abner, Eshcol, and Memray. Let them take their share. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, One born in my house is my heir. Then, behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. Then he took him outside and said, "Look, uh, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Okay? So, by way of review, let's go back to those first uh, few verses there, beginning in verse 17. Uh, What do you recall that we talked about last week? Okay, there's no record. At all of, of uh, Melchizedek's beginning, who he was born to, or or how he died, he just kind of appears three verses here in Genesis and disappears off the scene again. What else? He could have been
1: Jerusalem.
0: Okay. Okay. The reference there to Salem is very possibly a reference to the city of Jerusalem. Okay. Which would be a city at this point in time much smaller in size than what it eventually uh, becomes much later in the biblical, in biblical uh, uh, story, but it's still a significant city. Okay?
2: Um, there's still a lot of debate about who, how you know, is that kid?
0: Okay. What are our options?
2: Well, he's either a, a sign or a forerunner of Christ. Okay. Or the some
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, our possibilities are that he is a pre-incarnate. He's a he's he's a, a, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. That is, Christ appearing uh, in bodily form at some point before his nativity. And we have some examples of those in the Old Testament. We'll encounter one later. And some people think that this is in fact uh, a, 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 an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. And the other possibility is that he is that he is simply a a great righteous man. Who, because of uh, because of the position that he fills and, the, and and because of the nature of his life, uh, he actually serves as a type or or foreshadowing of Christ. Okay, so those are our two possibilities. And as I explained last week, I think at this point I lean towards the latter of those explanations. I lean towards uh, the view that he is uh, that he was a real real man, the real the king, a king of a real city there in Canaan at the time. Uh, and that he serves uh, as a type of Christ. I was going to say merely a type of Christ, but if you're a type of Christ, that's not nothing mere about that. But but I tend to see it that way. Uh, but you would certainly be uh, within the pale of orthodoxy if you looked at that uh, at him and, and understood him to be the pre-incarnate Christ. Okay. What else? Somehow he knew
1: that he was greater than. Abraham.
0: Okay. Okay. So, he comes and he gives this blessing. So, somehow, he understood that, that in, the, in the religious system, if you will, of the day, that his position was a position greater than Abram's. Why was that? What was it about him? I mean, aside from the fact that he was a king. He was a priest, okay? And he was a priest of what religion? Okay, he, was a, he was a priest of God Most High. He was a priest of Jehovah. He was a priest of the creator of the heavens and the earth. Okay? So he is a priest of the same God that Abram worships. Okay? And, and so this puts him in a position where he is able then to come and bring a blessing to Abram. What else?
1: A tribute that actually took the position of the suzerain, suzerain, uh huh. huh. Relationship that Abram was actually giving a tribute. Yes. That you call it the Jesus, Yes. And that it was a symbol or kind of the act of the protector that he recognized he was the
0: vassal. Yes. That he was giving this as, a,
2: as an offering to. God, yes. To protect for his for yeah. protection.
0: Yes. And whatever else that all meant, but yeah. at least, to me, I never right. ever knew that. Yeah. That was... Abram stands in this relationship with God, which, as we get into chapter 15, will really be put in much more con- in, in a much more concrete form in the actual form of a real covenant. Uh, as we go through chapter 15, but Abram understands that he stands in this relationship of dependence upon and subservience to Yahweh. Okay, and and so when 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 Melchizedek comes to him uh, to bless him, then Abram turns around and pays to him a tenth. Okay, uh, in the New Testament, it refers to it as a tithe. Okay, but he pays to him uh, this tenth and and as uh as we thought about last week that's a that's a reflection again of the of the culture that's that's this whole idea of this issue of covenant and treaty coming out again okay so the vassal was obligated he was responsible to pay this tribute uh typically 10% to pay a tribute to uh to his suzerain to the to the his lord or his master okay and uh, so when Abram pays this, gives this tenth of all the spoils, when he gives a tenth of all the spoils to, uh, to Melchizedek, who stands there as a mediator between him and God, as a representative of God, as he does this, it's actually Abram is paying his tribute. He's acknowledging God's lordship and, and as you said, God's protection in his life. Okay, And that's really the context uh, in which this idea of the tithe is developed. So when the when the tithe then uh, is institutionalized, when we get into the law in Exodus, uh, there in the wilderness, when it's institutionalized, it's really still carrying on this idea that that the children of Israel were responsible to pay this tribute. To their Lord and to their Master. Okay, so And the point that we made last week is that whether or not you believe that the tithe per se, the 10% requirement, uh, still is mandatory in the, in the church age, in the New Testament, whether or not you believe that, certainly you can accept that because God is your suzerain, because he, uh, he is your Master and He is your Lord, you owe Him a tribute. And you owe Him a tribute not only in your obedience and in your faith, and that sort of thing. But you owe him a material tribute. Okay? And we see that with Abram. He not only gives to God his faith, but he gives to God of his material possessions. Okay? And we owe to God a tribute to him. And what, whatever percentage or whatever part of your material possessions that ought to be that God has shown to you personally that ought to be, uh, you still uh, have some sense of, of responsibility to God to, to recognize his sovereignty over your life. Okay? Yes? S-U-Z-E-R-A-I-N is suzerain. And vassal is V-A-S-S-A-L. And I hope I'm right on that. (laughs) I got that right, yeah. Anything else you all want to talk about from last week before we go on? Yes. I wasn't here last week,
1: but um, it seemed to me like when Moses... Abraham went to Egypt and pretty much blew the, uh, the blessings of being uh, the nation which God was going to use to bless the world. But when he came back here, it seemed like the Lord gave him the opportunity by going after these four kings and reestablish that blessing again by the king. Because what he did was, in the eyes of all the kingdoms around her. Was uh, a miracle in a sense. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. he would go and do what he did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then by Melchizedek coming and blessing him, he reestablished this Abraham, fellow who wasn't even a king, but who lived in Mm -hmm. a Mm -hmm. small town, the opportunity that the nations again were able to look to him. And he could be
0: a blessing. Well that's an interesting yeah, that's an interesting observation. It's it, it, what you're saying is in in one sense the Lord gave him an opportunity in the eyes of the nations yes. to, to redeem his uh his faithfulness to God and his yes. position of blessing. That's an interesting point, yeah. Yes, two guys here, Dave and then Rick. Well,
3: the, uh, the office that not held... To drop out of the sky.
0: It were. No pun intended there. No. <laughs> <laughs> Was that a theological statement there? <laughs> <laughs> that's,
3: that's, no, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it makes me think that... Uh, I don't know if his reputation perceives him. Um, I, I doubt if he's wearing a bad Time, am a king of the uh-huh. line. But um, obviously, he was a spectacular uh, instance You know, you don't get to be a super king, you know, or a superpower, you know, without being one. But um, just the fact that there's only this reference and then one later in uh, the New Testament, yeah, of, of his existence, and,
0: and one in Psalms, in Psalms, yeah.
3: And um, you know, we see that as pretty, pretty uh, uh, impressive him to have that office, but God
0: doesn't see fit to give us, and he gives us more detail on some of the evil kings, Yeah, you know, that
3: uh, yeah. were defeated. Sure, this guy, yeah.
0: Who is his... He, in fact, here he actually talks more about the king of Sodom than he does yeah. about Melchizedek. Almost yeah, like deity, yeah, <laughs> was, uh, <laughs> yeah. That. yeah, that's interesting. Rick? The king
3: of Sodom
0: was one of the Yeah, yeah, and we talked about that, how... How here comes Abram? He comes back from uh, he comes back from the, this conquest. He comes back with all of this plunder. He comes back with all the people and the and the possessions of the city and the king of Sodom. He brings all that back. And then before he deals with the king of Sodom, he has this interaction with Melchizedek. And out of all of this stuff he's brought back, he pays this tribute to the Lord God through Melchizedek. And while all this is going on, and, and, and we're going to talk about the king of Sodom here some more this morning. While all this is going on, the king of Sodom is kind of standing there waiting his turn in line and he's watching a tenth of his possessions <laughs> being given away to the Lord. And so, it's, it's really kind of interesting is that, is that what what's happening through Abram here is that the king of Sodom, who refused to pay his tribute to Ketalammar, now is forced to pay his tribute totally involuntarily to God. Okay. And uh, as I was thinking about that, I, I thought about uh, how uh, the, the Lord tells us in the New Testament that ultimately, uh, before the Lord Jesus, every knee shall bow. And I think we see here in, in the experience of the king of Sodom, maybe a little illustration of that, that here he is being forced as everybody eventually will be forced, whether they are willing or not, to pay their tribute to God. So here the king of Sodom is being forced to pay his tribute to God, whether he likes it or not. Okay. Well, let's go on then and let's talk a little bit more about the king of Sodom and then move on into the next story. One of the things we talked about last week is that with the, with the structure of the narrative, the way it is written, and, and I understand even more so this is clear from the Hebrew, is that the intention here of Moses as he constructs this narrative is to juxtapose those two kings against one another. So that, we, so that as we look at these guys, we don't just look at what happens with Melchizedek and then we look at what happens with the king of Sodom, but that we really kind of compare them together. Okay? So as we think about the king of Sodom now for a few moments, one of the things we want to do is think about him in relationship to Melchizedek. Okay. So the king of Sodom, now he gets his shot at Abram and he comes to Abram and what does he say? Okay, so he comes simply and he says, okay, here's the deal. You get to keep the stuff and I get the people. Okay, Now, what strikes you about the difference in the king of Sodom and the king of Salem, Melchizedek, in their approaches to Abram at this point? Okay, okay. Uh, He ends up receiving a tenth, but he did not ask for anything. He comes and his whole purpose, his whole idea uh, is to bless Abram. His whole idea is just to be a blessing to Abram and to, and to be a, a vehicle of God's ministration in the life of Abram. That's his whole deal. The king of Sodom comes and all he wants to do is kind of negotiate things here and see what he can get out of the deal. Okay, He wants to recover as much of what he can uh, and, and he realizes he's not in a very good bargaining position. So he kind of says, listen, I'll keep the people and you get to keep the goods. Okay, So he really comes... Uh, and, and you may not pick this up as you kind of read it casually, but he's really coming with a very demanding attitude, okay? And, and the reason for that and the reason for the difference between Melchizedek and the king of Sodom is that the king of Sodom is a man of the world, okay? It's just that simple. He's a man of the world. In Melchizedek, we have one who is the seed of the woman by faith. And in the king of Sodom, we have one who is the seed of the serpent because of his unbelief. Okay. And the contrast is that as Melchizedek comes to Abram, he comes bringing a blessing and he comes attributing Abram's success to God. You notice that? He says to Abram, he says, Blessed be the Lord who's given you this victory, who's given you this triumph over your enemies. Okay? So as, as Melchizedek, who is of the seed of this woman by faith, as he comes to Abram, he's coming not only bringing a blessing, but acknowledging that Abram's success is from God. But when the king of Sodom comes, he comes as a man of the world. He comes with that, if you will, that materialistic, naturalistic worldview, okay? That everything is explainable in terms of what we can see and what we can touch. And that's why Abram, as he contemplates ahead of time, what am I going to do when I encounter the king of Sodom? And he makes this vow to God that he will not take anything from the king of Sodom, not a shoelace, nothing. I'm not going to take a thread from this guy. The reason he does that is because he anticipates that the king of Sodom is going to see things from this materialistic, naturalistic frame of mind, which means that if Abram takes anything uh, of the produce from the king of Sodom, what does Abram expect the king of Sodom will say? I made him rich. Now, oh, oh, yes. Go ahead. For
2: all the spoils were all those originally king of Sodom?
0: No, no. I, I, no, I'm assuming that there are others there too. Yeah, yeah. I'm assuming there are others there too. But the scripture brings out to us the story of the king of Sodom. Somebody back here was going to say something. I thought. It's interesting
2: yeah. i that the king of Sodom saying, hey, give me this, and you have
1: this. Did he have anything to do with winning the battle?
0: Uh, no, he didn't have anything to do with anything. But, but there was some cultural norm there that when somebody went out like that, uh, like Abram has done and and uh, achieved a victory and recovered the plunder, that he was really culturally obligated. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. He was really, in the, in the context of the culture, obligated to return a sizable amount of the possessions uh, to the original owner. And he was by right... Uh, permitted to keep some for himself for the risk and the adventure and, and for uh, for the investment that he's made in the endeavor he had a right to some of it. Okay, so he had a right to some uh, and, and 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 by 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 the cultural norm uh, he he should have returned some of it to the king of Sodom. Okay, so that would have been the culture cultural context that he's operating in. Okay. Yes.
2: Uh, it strikes me that able response. Also, is that he doesn't he doesn't allow Sodom to have the will, you know, to say, hey, I I did this, you did
1: that, and I get this. He's he's saying to Sodom, you can have it. I don't want anything out of it, and therefore. You
0: can't have that power over me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, he clearly does not acknowledge the king of Sodom's authority over him at all, which really stands, again, in contrast to what he acknowledges about the king of Salem. I mean, the king of, yeah, king of Salem, Melchizedek. He, he really responds to him totally differently. And again, it's because one is of the world and one is of the spirit. One is of faith and one is of the world. And we see this stark contrast between how the people of the world think and how we as believers ought to think. And we see that we see that even today that that when when something happens in which God's hand has we would say clearly been in act, been in action and we can see God's hand in action, when the world looks at those things, they always attribute it to naturalistic causes, right? So, for example, if uh, you know, take, take uh, just one example came to my mind was, was uh, if you happen to be reading a secular historian's account of the Great Awakening. Okay. And the Great Awakening was a spiritual revival that took place uh, in the 1700s, uh, profound as the one that uh, uh, Wesley and Whitfield and those guys were all a part of. Okay. So, there's this profound spiritual awakening, a great revival that took place uh, in New England uh, had a profound impact on the culture uh, and uh, and it was very clearly a movement of god's spirit, okay But when secular historians write about it, they always attribute it to completely naturalistic causes, okay They're doing just what the King of Sodom has done. We can't expect somebody who's coming from the world to think in spiritual terms. they can't do it, okay and so So this is what Abram anticipates. He anticipates this and he is determined that he's not going to be in a position which will allow the king of Sodom to take credit for what God has done. So I want you to notice what Abram does. In order to secure the greater glory of God, Abram sacrifices his rights. You see that? For the greater glory of God, Abram sacrifices his rights. Now, we should be clear about this, and I think Scripture is clear, that there is such a thing as human rights. There are certain things that we, because we are created by God in His image and because of the way He has structured uh, His creation, there are certain things that we have by right. Okay? Okay? And when we get into the New Testament, we see that quite clearly. Uh, there are a couple of occasions in when, when the life of the Apostle Paul where he very aggressively asserts his right, uh, basically as a Roman citizen. Uh, but, but the right ultimately finds its origin in, in, uh, in God and not in the Roman government. And, and in, in cases where his rights were being jeopardized or were being threatened, there are some occasions where Paul very clearly asserts his rights. And he says to, uh, in one case, you can't do this to me because I'm a Roman citizen and I have certain rights. Okay? And he asserts his rights. But there are other cases in the life of the Apostle Paul where he has rights that he chooses not to assert. For example, he has the right as an apostle to live off of his ministry, to have people support him. And he chooses to forfeit that right for the greater glory of God. And there are a couple other instances. He chooses not to marry. He has the right to marry. But he chooses not to marry. He forfeits that right for the advancement of the kingdom of God. So we discover a principle beginning here with Abram and running on through Scripture that that there are these God-given rights that we have, but that there will be times in our experience and times in our lives when we will be called upon by God to relinquish those rights for His greater glory or to relinquish those rights for the advancement of His kingdom. Or to relinquish those rights in order to be able to love someone the way they need to be loved. Yeah?
2: Uh, in thinking about this concept of relinquishing your rights, actually for many years, my concern for myself is that I would recognize when I'm in a situation where I should mm-hmm. relinquish my rights. Because mm-hmm. the natural man is never going to relinquish his rights unless it's to his advantage. Yeah you know, got the upper hand. So there's that struggle in knowing. So I'm wondering how how is Abram recognizing that in this situation? And how do we later and you know just in our daily life recognize those times.
0: And you want me to answer that. Yes, <laughs> no, no, you
2: don't have to. Yes. I know it's probably I, I,
0: I don't know the answer how Abram knew. Yes, he anticipated the it seems he anticipated uh, the the uh, he anticipated the situation yeah, and he knew ahead of time what he was going to do, so he had clearly thought about it and he had obviously prayed about it because he said he lifted up his hands to the Lord he he committed it to the Lord so it's something that he obviously gave some thought to and gave some prayer to. I think that would be a strong clue as to how we discover it. We may not be able to discover it. On the fly. It may take some prayer and some careful thought. Rick? I think a lot of times these things revolve around money. Around what? Money. Okay. Yeah, they do. Certainly they do. Yeah. Money and power. Yeah.
2: That reminded me of a proverb, uh, your answer. Uh, the wise man, or, well, I'm not going to quote it exactly right, but it's basically the wisdom of a wise man is in anticipating what. way. Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah. kind of what, yeah. what saying that yeah. you're. You're looking forward, you're seeing that this is going to come up and yeah. you be prepared for the war. may maybe quote easy. Yeah,
0: I think sometimes it is the ones we don't anticipate. It's the time when when our spouse uh, doesn't treat us exactly the way we think we ought to be treated, and the question is, will I assert my right at this point or will I for the sake of peace in the family? Relinquish my right. And I think the classic example for us, and it takes application particularly when it's written, uh, in the the context in which it's written, its strictest application is to the context of of unity within the church, within the body of Christ. The classic example is Philippians chapter 2, where Christ did not regard equality with uh, although he was made uh, equal with God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped and what we see continually and repeatedly in the life of Christ excuse me life of Christ is those things which were his by right he continually laid aside repeatedly laid aside he allowed people to misunderstand him he allowed people to mistreat him over and over and over again in the life of Christ in order to act redemptively in our lives, laid aside his rights. Okay? And, and so he's, he's the classic example. We have an example, as I said, with Paul and we have an example with Abraham. Uh, but, our, but our best example of all, of course, is the Lord Jesus. And he is the pattern that Paul sets forth for us when it comes to the context of getting along with others within the body of Christ, within the church is that if I'm going to get along with others, then I have to have the same mind which Christ had, and that mind is one which says, I'm not going to demand my rights in every case. There will be times when I will set those things aside. There will be, of course, a time when Christ will legitimately demand and require everything that is rightfully His. But there was a time in His... uh, 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 in In our lives at least uh, i don 't know if we talk about time in the life of God, but there there was a time in our lives when it was necessary for Christ in order to act redemptively in our lives to lay aside his rights, and we see that here in the life of abram okay well so Abram refuses, and of course the other thing that' something we 've been kind of hinting at all along in the last couple of weeks is that. That when he does that, when Abram says, I'm going to just give you all this stuff. I don't want any of this stuff. That what we really see in the life of Abram is that this guy who had the promise of God to be made a great nation. Let's go releases the best opportunity he's had so far to see that promise fulfilled in his life. From a human point of view. And that's the thing that strikes me is that is that to Abram, and, and I think Abram's primary concern here, of course, is, is what the king of Sodom will say and the greater glory of God. That's his concern. But in doing so, another thing that Abram's saying is, i got to trust God on this one, folks. I can't do this myself. And there are There are times in our lives, I think, when we face circumstances and situations in our lives. I know I certainly have and I assume you have too. That we face circumstances and situations in our lives where we are waiting upon God's action. We are waiting upon God's salvation in our lives. We are waiting upon God's promise. And then, by way of test, God allows into our life something like Abram had here, which might be our way to get the promise of God by our power and by our might. And the question is, at that point, will I say, no, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to set this thing aside. This looks like like the way I can pull this off, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to set it aside and I'm going to wait on God to do this His way. And we see that here in the life of Abram. Well, Let's go on then into chapter 15. And and I don't know, I have no idea how much time elapses here between the events at the end of 14 and what now unfolds in chapter 15. But chapter 15 is, is uh, is basically a whole. In other words, all of chapter 15 is telling us about this vision or this encounter that Abram has with God. Now, whether or not this was one vision or a series of visions that happen uh, in close proximity to one another, I don't know. How much of it was strictly vision and how much of it was, was actually Abram acting some things out while he's having this vision, I can't answer that question. But what is important is that chapter 15 is a watershed chapter. It's a watershed event in the life of Abram. And by the time we get to verse 6, which we may or may not get that far today, by the time we get to verse 6, something profound will happen in the life of Abram that will become the paradigm for everyone who will come to know God from this point forward. So this is really a critical chapter for us to spend some time on to think about and to contemplate. But you'll notice it opens by saying that after these things, and, and we don't know how long it was, uh, I, I should point out to you that uh, that when we get to the book of Romans, Paul spends all of chapter 4 expositing chapter, verse 6 of chapter 15 of Genesis. Okay? So all of chapter 4 of Romans is an exposition of, of Genesis 15.6. Basically, okay, uh, and so if you really want to understand Genesis 15:6, you have to understand Romans 4. But we're not studying. Like I said last week, we weren't studying Hebrews. Well, we're not studying Romans. Okay, so we're not going to exposit Romans chapter 4. What we're primarily going to try to do is understand Genesis 15:6 in its context in Genesis. Uh, with some understanding, some light shed on it from Romans 4. But if you really want to fully understand Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, you're going to have to understand Romans 4 because that gives us the full explication, explanation of what's really going on here. Okay? But, but one of the things that uh, that becomes clear as we as we look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 4 about this whole event in the life of Abram is how crucial this event is how critical this event is this is really a turning point in the life of Abraham and there are some aspects of this that I can't explain but I think it becomes pretty clear as we go forward but but he begins here in in chapter 15 by saying after these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying and immediately if you're a reader and a student of the Old Testament, your antenna go up. Because of the way that Moses chooses to construct his narrative again here. And the words that he uses. When he says, and the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. What does that do to you? What do you think about when you read that articulated that way? It's the first time he says it that way about God speaking to Abraham, and he's spoken to him several times by now. But it's the first time he said it this way. Is there something about the way he says it that rings a bell? Sounds like a prophet. Sounds like a prophet, okay? It's what we call, or what I would call, a prophetic formula. Okay, over and over and over again, and we get into the you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah and the other prophets, we get this formula, don't we? The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Or the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Or the word of, you know, we get that formula over and over again. And so immediately this is a clue as we begin chapter fifteen that something really significant is happening here. And we discover here in chapter fifteen, that Abram is now placed in the position of a prophet. We don't often talk about Abram as a prophet, but when we get to chapter 20, we're going to see that God himself refers to Abram as a prophet. Okay? Now, the significance of that is that it places this whole chapter 15 in the context of prophecy. So, it's not just now it's not just a narrative about something that happened but we understand now, because of the formula that, that Moses uses as he introduces the story to us, we understand that this is a prophecy. And it's a prophecy on a, on a par with the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and all the other great prophets of the Old Testament. Okay? And this is important for us to understand because he describes what is about to unfold. To a, He's about to explain and, and narrate to us. He describes it as a vision. Okay. Now, I've never had a vision. And I don't know if you've ever had a vision. I think you probably haven't. So, it's pretty hard to know exactly what, what he's describing here. Okay. Uh, we have various kinds of visions that are described to us in the Scripture. And they come to people in different ways. And they have different kinds of experiences when they have these visions. But, but because of the way it's articulated here that it's a vision, I do not assume that everything he's about to describe to us in chapter 15 actually, physically, literally happened. Okay? We don't need to assume that because he's telling us it's a vision. So some of these things, for example, Abram going out and looking up at the stars. He may have gone out and looked up at the stars, in the context of vision. He may have physically gone outside in, a, in some kind of a, a spiritual trance or whatever and looked up and seen the stars. Or it may be that just in the context of his vision, he went out and looked up in the stars. Okay, We don't know. But it doesn't matter. Because what, is, what does matter to us is that this is Word from God. It's on a par with all the other great prophecies of Scripture. So we know that it's true. It doesn't have to have all happened literally for the message of the prophecy to be true. The second thing we should understand about it, and this will become more critical as we get on later in the chapter, the second thing we should understand about it is there is symbolism in these things as, as we oftentimes have in a vision. Um, Ronnie right now is going through Revelation and we're getting into all these Visions that John had, okay, not all these things actually happened physically to john he didn 't physically see all these things that we 're learning about in revelation these these are things these are visions okay but they but these visions, these things that he saw somehow spiritually saw, are still a true message, and the message they're conveying is true and so whatever it means here when it says that Abram received the Word of the Lord by a vision. Whatever it means, the one thing we can be rest absolutely assured of is, is that God is communicating truth here, which is irre- irrevocably and eternally true. Okay. And uh, and then we'll see, of course, Abram's response to this. So the word of the Lord comes to Abram in this prophetic vision, and and uh, and he says to him, he says, I am a, he says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am a shield to you. He says, your reward will be very great. So, the, the first thing he does is he, 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 he says to Abram uh, that he's protected, that God is his protector or whatever. He doesn't need to be afraid. And then the second thing is that he is going to receive a, a great reward. Okay. Well, the problem is, as we look at this passage, we go, what is he afraid of? And what is he going to be rewarded for? Okay, that's the first questions I would ask when I read this passage. Okay. And the difficulty we have, we have is we really don't know the answer to either one of those questions. We don't really know what it was that Abram was afraid of. And we don't know what it was he was being, specifically, he was being rewarded for. Okay? And you could speculate, you can, you can assume that chapter 15, that the events of chapter 15, that this vision falls right on the heels of what's just happened in chapter 14, in which case his fear might be a fear of uh, retaliation from Mesopotamia, or it might be a fear of some of the other kings of Canaan uh, uh, wanting to take advantage of him at this point. Uh, uh, it, it could be uh, it could be a fear of any number of things. Okay, but if in fact a number of years have passed since what happened in chapter 14, before we get to chapter 15, and I and I personally think a number of years have passed. Uh, because of what Paul says about this experience in the life of Abram. Uh, I think actually this is probably much closer to uh, when Abram is about uh, 100 years old from what Paul says. Okay? If that's the case, then it's unlikely that, that his fear and his reward should be associated with what's just, what we've just read about in chapter 14, but it has something to do with something else. It really doesn't matter. What matters here is that God has revealed to Abram that he is his shield. And there's really nothing he needs to be afraid of. And this concept, this idea of God as a shield, becomes a constant drum then throughout Scripture, doesn't it? God is a shield. God is a fortress. God is our protector. Okay, And this becomes this becomes a theme that goes all the way through the book of Genesis and then all the way through the Old Testament and into the New Testament is that for the person who walks by faith, God is his shield and he need not fear. Okay. Well, Abram doesn't seem to have much problem with that promise. But then comes the second promise. And the second promise is, your reward will be very great. Now, <clears throat> you'd think, you, being Abram, you'd go, hey, that's pretty cool. I kind of like this idea. God's promising me a great reward. Okay? But how does Abram respond to that promise? Okay. And what else? I mean, that precipitates what other part of his response? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, But he says something before he says, I have no child. What does he say?
1: I have everything I need.
0: Okay. Okay. okay, that's basically what he's saying. He says, what are you going to give to me? Since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He says, because you have not given, have not given an offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Now, here we have Abram, and this guy is just unbelievably rich. He's he's incredibly rich. He's got political power now because of his great victory over the kings of Mesopotamia. I mean, this guy has got everything you could want, right? The answer there is no. That's what you're supposed to say. You're supposed to say no. He doesn't have everything he wants. In fact, he doesn't have the one thing he wants, which is a child. And I think it's implied here in Abram's response. I think what Abram is saying is I would give up everything I have got if I could just have this kid. But there's something else there in Abram's response that that strikes me. Is that not only is he saying, "Listen, Lord, what are you going to give me?" because because I'm childless. There's something implied in that response about his expectation of the future, and what is that? Okay, meaning, old. meaning to it ain't going to happen, folks. That's what he's thinking. I think Abram has reached the conclusion that whatever all these promises of God that he's heard from God many, many years ago, and if I if Abram's like I am, he's going, Did I hear that right? How did I you know, did I miss something here? And I think it's very clear that Abram is saying when Abram says to God, God, what are you going to give to me since I am childless? I think he, what he's saying is I think what he's saying is, okay, God, I I get your point. You're not going to give me a child. So what could you possibly give me that would be a reward? I can't imagine of anything that I could possibly want that you could give me that I would think is a reward. And it's quite clear, God, that you have chosen not to give me a child. Now, before you judge Abram too harshly here, I, I don't want to imply here that Abram doesn't believe the promises that God has already given him. But as I have said over and over again as we've gone through this story, he doesn't understand. He can't figure it out. He can't, you know, it just, he can't figure out how God's going to fulfill his promises. And we'll see this demonstrated then, of course, in the whole incident with uh, Sarah and Hagar when that whole thing unfolds. As that unfolds, it's not because Abram doesn't believe God's promise. It's because he can't figure out how's God going to do it. That's why he stumbles there in his, in, 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 uh, in, and, and sins in that situation. It's because he's, he's trying to figure out how God's going to do it. And he, and he figured, and he's, I guess I've got to help God out somehow. Yeah. Well,
2: what's interesting in the credit to Abraham is he continues to do God's will. And yes. Not right, he
0: will yeah. Right. He yeah. Thinks he's not gonna And that's one of the striking things about Abram is that as as we look at Abram, it's very clear this is a guy who struggles with faith. We always talk about Abraham, this great example of faith. But what we discover in this passage is this is a guy who really struggles. But as one of the commentators pointed out, while, while it's clear that Abram struggles internally with his faith, he always lived his life, with two or three exceptions, he always lived his life Based on the promises of God. So, so whenever he's whenever he's struggling, whenever God, I don't understand this, God. You know, you said you were going to give me descendants like the dust of the earth, and and, and I just I just don't understand this because, because now it's pretty obvious, Lord. I'm getting to be a hundred years old, and 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 in, in Romans, Paul says he contemplated the deadness of his own body. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. Those are things he thought about. Those are the things that he contemplated, Paul says. As he wrestled with this issue of, what is this promise of God? How is it going to be realized in my life? I don't understand this, God. And so when God says to him that... that He's going to get this great reward. Instead of evoking in Abram all this, oh, this is exciting, it brings up the the greatest test in Abram's life. And we're going to see this again as we go through Hebrews, is that the greatest test in our life is always the very promise of God we have. And that's exactly what we learn, as I mentioned a, a week or two ago, we'll see it in the life of Joseph. That Joseph, I really believe Joseph's greatest test was not the betrayal of his brothers. I don't think Joseph's greatest test was the lie of Potiphar's wife. I don't believe that Joseph's greatest test was the many years he spent in an Egyptian prison. Joseph's greatest test, I believe, and the Scripture classifies it as a test, was the promise of God that he had in those dreams he got when he was a kid. And he had those dreams, he had that vision, he had, Psalms calls it, a word from God, and that word tested him, it says. And oftentimes, God's promises to us are our greatest test. Because if God didn't promise these things to us, then we just kind of just go through life and just kind of muddle through somehow. But now we have these promises of God and when we don't see them being realized in our experience, when we don't see them being realized in our lives, then we are tempted to think two things, one of two things or both. We're either tempted to think, somehow I've blown it and God doesn't love me anymore. And so His promise no longer holds. Or maybe God's just not as faithful as I thought He was. Have you ever thought any of those thoughts? I have. When the promise of God was, was there and I, it seemed so obvious to me, but it just I, it just wasn't being realized. And so here we have this, this guy Abram, and he's, and he's struggling. he's trying to understand this. God. How can this be? What reward could you give me? Because you've obviously decided you're not going to give me a child. Well, we're going to stop about here, but I want—I want to, want to just—I don't want to just leave you totally hanging, okay? Because he says, I want—I want you to notice uh, in in verse. Two, as Abram begins to question God, and that's what he's doing. He's questioning God. He's not questioning God in the sense that he's saying, God, I, I doubt you. I don't think you're faithful. He's questioning God in the sense of, God, I don't understand this. I, I need some help here. I need some explanation here, God. And, and I think we're, by the response that we see God giving to Abram, we, we come to understand it's okay to do that, folks. It's not okay to say, God, I don't believe you. It's not okay to say, God, I doubt you. But it is okay to say, God, I don't understand and I need some explanation. And that's what Abram's doing. Now, he may choose to give you an explanation. He may choose not to. But it's okay to ask him for one. But I want you to notice how he addresses God here. And then we'll stop. He calls him the Lord God. Okay. Now, this can get kind of confusing here, so hang on with me. There are a number of names for God that are used in the Old Testament in the Hebrew. Okay? We've already looked at one, which is the name Elohim, which is usually translated God. Okay? Another one we've talked about a lot is the name Yahweh or, or, or Jehovah, okay? which is often tra- usually translated Lord. Okay? And in various translations, they do this in different ways. But in the New American, and many of you I know use the New American, so I'll just explain this: that whenever they're translating the name Yahweh, except in certain circumstances, they write it L-O-R-D, all capital letters. Okay. But there's another title for God. Now, this is this is Yahweh here. Okay. There's another name for God. Adonai, another Hebrew word. Okay. And that Hebrew word actually means Lord. That's what it means. Okay, Yahweh is the personal name for God that God gives to Moses at Sinai. Okay, when he when he calls him the I am, when he says I am the I am, he says my name is Yahweh. Okay, so but the the name Adonai. Actually, means a master or lord. Okay, that's its meaning in the Hebrew. Okay, and so whenever the name Adonai is used in Scripture, or usually when it's used in Scripture in the New American, it writes it L O R D, small letters. Okay, so as you're reading your New American, if you and various translations do this different, so you have to read the translation notes at the beginning of your Bible to see how they do this. But if you're reading New American, whenever you see Lord in all caps. The Hebrew word behind it is Yahweh. And whenever you see Lord in small caps with a capital L, it's the name Adonai. But the problem is there are a number of times in the Old Testament where those two are put together. And so if they translated them, it would read Lord, Lord. Okay? And that really doesn't convey the meaning. Okay? So when they put them together in the New American, they translate uh, Adonai as Lord and they translate Yahweh as God. Okay? So what all that to say that at this point when Abram is addressing the Lord, he's addressing him as Adonai Yahweh, okay? That's how he's addressing him in Hebrew. Okay? And there's significance to that. Because Abram is about to say to God, God, it does I don't understand this and I don't I, don't, I can't figure out how these promises are going to work out. But lest there be any, any sense at all that Abram is not walking in, in a perfect relationship with God here, he begins his questioning with Adonai Yahweh. O Adonai Yahweh. O Lord Yahweh covenant God and actually what he's saying here is what Peter says when he, when he sees Jesus and he goes my Lord and my God and so what what Abram is doing as he begins to ask God these questions and he asks him a couple here that are very difficult questions that he puts to God as he begins to ask God these questions what he's saying is you are my suzerain and you are my God and so, as he begins to question God, he does so with this spirit of reverence and loyalty. This spirit that says, remember God, I just paid you a tribute, and that's my heart. So, whatever your answer, God, I just want to you know as I'm asking the question, whatever your answer, you're my Lord, you're my Master, you're my Suzerain, and I will submit. And the second thing he says is, I recognize you are the God of covenant. You are the God of relationship. You are my God. So whatever your answer, God, you're my God. And you are my Lord. And that's the attitude of reverence with which he comes to question God. Well, we obviously uh, will have to stop here and we'll pick it up next week. And it gets really exciting as we go forward. Okay?
2: Evening, by the way, 50, was
0: Excuse me? That's right, that's right. And he was way past it by this point. (laughs) Actually, 50 was youth to him. (laughs)